You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. Thank you, Linda, for the offering prayer. And uh, what a great song before that. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ, and he's all we need. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And that is what we're going to see this morning in our sermon. Before we go to God in prayer, um, Tom will say more about this during the announcement, but uh, there's an opportunity for you to sign up for New York School of the Bible classes right after the service, so please take advantage of that. But let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this great and glorious privilege that we have, co- we have to come before your presence, to worship you, uh, to, to hear about opportunities to equip ourselves and to serve you, and to hear from you. Because as we speak from your word, you speak to us through your spirit. So we pray that you would speak to us, you would open our hearts to receive your word, and that they would find fertile soil there to produce much fruit of faith and obedience and witness that honors you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that uh, he is all we have and he is all we need, and that in him we are your children. We thank you this morning. We pray that you would teach us by your Spirit so that we may live as witnesses for Christ, for your glory, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We all uh, like these uh, before and after stories, don't we? There are lots of shows of before and after, uh, and even stories. There are uh, fitness stories of before and after. Uh, as a young boy, I remember many a comic book. On the, on, the, on the back page, there was this story that was featured of a skinny guy who has sand kicked on his face at the beach. And then he goes and gets all buffed up. I don't know. How, I forget how he did it. But uh, then he takes down the bully who used to kick, down, uh, kick sand on his face. Uh, then we all have those, these uh, fashion makeover uh, stories where people go from looking drab to fab, all with just a haircut and some makeup and a change in wardrobe, and even their own families don't recognize them anymore. Uh, and who doesn't like the uh, who doesn't like this good uh, home makeover stories where um, you know words like shiplap and backlash, uh, backsplash. They were never part of my vocabulary till uh, Chip and Joanna started taking rundown homes and uh, turning them into mini mansions. Uh, this morning we are going to look at a before and after story that leaves all these other before and after stories in the dust. It's a story of death to life. And it's our story. We were dead. Did you know that? <laughs> but we were made alive. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first, uh, first 10 verses. Here's the familiar outline. We started with Paul's initial greeting to the Ephesians. And right after those two verses, he, 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 
He dove into this doxology in verses 3 to 14, praising God for all that he has done and choosing us before the foundation of the world and redeeming us in Christ Jesus, his son, and guaranteeing that salvation through his spirit with whom we are sealed. Then last week, was, we saw in verses 15 to 23, Paul prayed that God would give the Ephesians a greater awareness of the blessings that they had received in their redemption. He prayed that the Spirit will help them to know God and, his, and the blessings he has bestowed on them, the hope of their calling, how greatly they are valued by God, by God and the unequaled power that God exhibited in the, the resurrection and exaltation of his son, power that is available for us, for our life in Christ. Then Paul went on in the, in the last three verses, 20 to 23, uh, he went on to elaborate about this great power of God that is available to us, how God demonstrated that power in, in raising up his son from the dead by exalting him to his right hand and appointing him as a sovereign Lord above all powers, all authorities, all ru uh, rulers, all dominions. And he gave Christ to the church as its head so that he may fill the church. And through the church, God will gather up all people to himself in Christ and make them new. Christ is Lord, he claimed through his death and resurrection. He has defeated all powers and authorities and now is Lord over all of them. Well, when you look around you, in our city, around the world, it doesn't seem like things are under the Lordship of Christ, does it? The powers still seem to be doing their thing of dividing people along familial and ethnic and political and national lines. We see conflict and violence and oppression and abuse everywhere, even in the closest of relationships. How can Paul defend his claim that... Christ is Lord even now over all things. Well, Paul is going to do just that in chapter 2. He provides two lines of defense that will demonstrate that Christ is indeed Lord of all, that he's Lord above all these powers that he has defeated through his death and his resurrection. He has done that by overcoming two alienations. First, we know that Christ is Lord because... Through him, God has, the, our alienation with, from God has been overcome in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And then the second line of defense that Paul would provide to show that Christ is Lord over all the powers is that in Christ, God has overcome our, our, our alienation from each other from, as Jews and Gentiles, but that it would include all those who are in enmity with each other. This morning, we will look at that first line of defense in chapter 2, 1 to 10. That where Paul demonstrates Christ's sovereignty over all the powers. The first proof of Christ's supremacy over the powers is that God has freed his people from bondage to evil powers that kept them trapped in sin and death because of our transgressions. How do you know that Christ is Lord of all even now? Paul says, look at yourselves. You were dead. But now God has made you alive by uniting you to the death and resurrection of his son. He has created us anew in Christ to showcase his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness through us. 
Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is our before and after story. It is our death to life story. It is through our story that God demonstrates that Christ is indeed Lord. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. This passage can be divided into three sections. First in verses 1 to 3, Paul describes our tragic, hopeless condition before we knew Christ. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 9, he celebrates God's great rescue of us by uniting us to the resurrection and the exaltation of his son. He, we are alive in Christ. Finally, in verse 10, Paul states the purpose of God's great rescue. We have been brought from death to life so that we may do the good works that God has prepared for us. This is the ultimate before and after story. God has raised us up from the dead and rescued us from the powers that held us there by uniting us to his son so that we now live according to God's purposes for his glory and all by his grace and mercy and kindness and love. Paul writes in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God's victory over the powers is first demonstrated in our salvation. Paul paints for us the stark picture of our condition from which we were saved, our before story. He writes that we were dead. You were dead, he says, in this trespasses and sins in, one, in, in which you once walked. Paul takes, Paul takes three long verses to describe our horrible predicament. The best description of our, con our condition that he can come up with is that we were dead. Our sins and our transgressions separated us from God, the source of life. Uh, this happened way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed, they ate, they suffered the consequence, they died. No, they didn't die physically immediately, but they were immediately cut off from their relationship with God, the source of their life. They were spiritually dead and bound for physical death. In their sin and the judgment that ensued, they plunged their entire progeny into the, simple, in the, into the same plight that they were in, dead. Every human being born since then, since our first parents, with the exception of our Lord in his incarnation, has been born dead and dying. Spiritually dead and physically dying. If left in that spiritual death, physical death would lead to eternal death, eternal separation from God. That, my brothers and sisters, is the natural condition of all human beings at birth. We are born dead. But notice, Paul says, we were dead, but we were walking. So obviously he's not referring to us being physically dead. Because he walks, he describes us as walking in our trespasses and our sins. We are the walking dead. We call them zombies. 
right? We were the walking dead. Walking is a metaphor for living. Uh, we are born as uh, trespassers, that is, people who transgress God's law. We, were, we are born as that. We are born as sinners, that is, people who miss the mark and fall short of the glory of lives lived in obedience to God. We are so alienated from God by our sins and trespasses that our condition could only be described as dead. Well, the bad news gets worse. Not only is it impossible for dead people to reverse their condition, there were evil powers that kept us in bondage to death. Paul identifies uh, three malevolent forces that had us under their control, two external and one internal. The world, the devil, and the flesh. When I used to live in Dallas, we called it DFW, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth, but help me remember. DF Dallas, you know, it's, it's a different order here. Uh, the world of flesh and the devil. The world, that's the first evil power that Paul describes as, as keeping in bondage. Uh, he says we, we were walking in accordance to the course of this world. What does he mean? He means that uh, uh, what he has in mind is the, the standards of the world alienated and in opposition to God. All things that are not subject to Christ the world here could refer to ideologies and false religions and philosophies and values and economic systems, all influences that characterize life apart from God and his purpose for our lives. Uh, this world attempts to ignore its creator and is even hostile to him. And that world is our home, a prison. It's like Hotel California. You can check out but she can never leave, held in bondage by the world, in our sin, in our transgressions, in death. The second evil power that Paul identifies as holding us in bondage is the devil. Uh, we live in a world where the devil is either ignored or credited with far more than what he is due. However, if we take scripture seriously, the devil is a created being, he is vehemently opposed to God, and is always seeking the destruction of God's image bearers. However, he's no equal to God and is a creature that must submit to God as we see even in the book of Job. Moreover, as we are going to see, uh, as we read further in this letter, he's a defeated foe and his end is certain and his defeat is by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. His end is certain, but he is still engaged in his activity of seeking to destroy the human race and oppose God. Paul says this power dwells in the air that's in Paul's time. That's how uh, the Jewish people uh, uh, thought of the, the realm of evil powers. It was the air. There were spirit beings that dwelt in the air that were evil forces. And these are, and those who are in bondage to the devil, Paul describes them as sons of disobedience. Like father, like son. We were counted among the children of the devil before we were rescued from that dominion and brought into God's own kingdom in his son. But that, that's the good news, that has to wait. We're still in the bad news section. There's one more evil power that Paul identifies and he calls it the flesh. That's the enemy within the gates. The flesh here is not merely our body because Paul speaks of the mind as well. So the, the flesh is everything in us that stands opposed to God. Is, is, it stands in opposition to the spirit, our Lord, warned us or cautioned us that this flesh profits nothing. 
Paul warns us elsewhere that those who live to please the flesh cannot please God. Paul lays out for us the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Read that list and uh, we will recognize many of those in our own lives. While we were indulging in the pleasures of the flesh, what the flesh was doing was drawing us deeply into a bondage from which we could not escape on our own. We were dead, we were held in bondage, and the news gets worse. We were destined for wrath. As sons of disobedience, we were destined for judgment due on the children of wrath. This is the destiny of all people apart from Christ. We don't like to speak of the wrath of God, but scripture is clear that God's wrath is directed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In Romans, God's wrath is currently being revealed against all uh, as, as he's handing us over to our sins and our rebellion. In Thessalonians, we are, for, we are warned of a future outpouring of God's wrath. God's wrath should not be seen as contradictory to his love. God's characteristics are unified in his person. They are not in opposition to one another. God is completely loving, kind, merciful, gracious, and compassionate. And at the same time, he's completely holy, blameless, righteous, and just. God's wrath is his uh, proper response to all that is evil, to sin, to our rebellion. Uh, his, his wrath is not uh, capricious and unpredictable and spiteful and out of control like our anger is. Uh, it is a settled judgment against sin. Apart from Christ, our destiny from birth was God's righteous wrath, his judgment. We were dead in bondage. We were born dead and kept dead by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our destiny was God's judgment and wrath. We couldn't save ourselves. We needed rescue. Who will save us from our plight? Paul despairs in Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And then he cries out in joy, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We too can cry out with Paul, but God. Two of the sweetest words in the Bible when they come together, begin the second part of this passage. We were dead, but God has made us alive in Christ. A more hope-filled words have never been spoken, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. But God. Oops. How did that go back all the way to the beginning? We're going to have to start our sermon over. <laughs> but God. Before Paul would get to God's wonderful rescue, he pauses to wonder at the character of God 
who has carried out our salvation. Before he could say anything about what God has done, he tells us about who God is, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul will make it clear in the final verses of this section that we do not merit salvation uh, by anything in us or about what we do, by, our, by what we do, but we don't have to wait till the end to find out that it's not because of us we are saved, but because of God who acts according to his character. Our salvation is rooted in God's character. He is rich in mercy. His love for us is great. He is merciful and loving. And by the time we get to the end of the passage, Paul will add that he is gracious and he is kind. That is the God who has saved us. And that is why we are saved. God so loved the world that in his tender mercy, he sent his son to redeem us from our plight. Let us never stop being amazed by God's great salvation. Salvation flows from God's character. His love, mercy, grace, and kindness and not from our worth or from our effort. Paul describes how God has saved us from our plight in verses 4 through 7, and then how we receive that salvation in verses 8 and 9. First, the, the what of our salvation. Uh, what is it that God has done to save us in verses 4 through 7? Uh, he reminds us, before he gets to that, he reminds us once again that we were dead in our trespasses. Keep that in mind. You were dead. He didn't do anything. God has done everything. He writes to the Romans, but God, there's another but God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He has saved us because of who he is. We are saved by God's grace, mercy, love, and kindness, and not by our merit, our worth, our effort. Here we have uh, three verbs that Paul uses. God made us alive together with him. God raised us up with him. God seated us together with him. Each of these verbs is accompanied by the preposition with. God raised us up with him. God made us alive with him. God seated us together with him. All that God has done to save us, he has done by uniting us to Christ. There is literally no salvation apart from Christ. Salvation is in Christ. We are saved by our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. The first verb, Paul tells us that God has made us alive in Christ. This is the first verb that, uh, of that first sentence runs seven verses and the verb comes on the, in the fifth verse. God made us alive together with him that is in Christ. God has reversed our condition. We were dead. He has made us alive in Christ. Paul is not speaking here about our future physical resurrection, but of raising us from being dead in our sins and trespasses to the newness of life that is lived unto God. He's speaking of our rescue from being captive to sin and transgressions. Paul writes in Romans 6 that sin is no longer our master. We are no longer under the authority of sin to obey its dictates. We no longer have to yearn the deadly wages that our old master sin used to pay its, uh, its, its slaves. We belong to a new master who gives us the gift of life. If we are alive in Christ, to continue in sin is as ludicrous as for a man to be lying in a casket while he is still alive. We are no longer dead. We are alive. <clears throat> Paul 
Paul, before Paul proceeds to the next two things that God has done for us, he pauses to tell us what God has done for us is by his grace. Throughout, he wants to remind us that it's not about us. It's not us. It is God. It is his unmerited favor. By grace, you have been saved. He will elaborate on that in verse 8. But for now, he makes sure that we realize that God's great salvation is not because of anything in us or what we have done, but because of his gracious nature. Secondly, after saying that we have been made alive with him, Paul says we have, God has raised us up with him. He describes our salvation as being raised up together with Christ. In the previous section, we saw that God's power was demonstrated in raising up his son from the dead. And here we find out that in raising up his son from the dead, he has raised us along with him. Obviously, Paul is not talking about our future uh, physical resurrection to glory that awaits. But here, he is referring to our spiritually being made alive. We are alive in Christ even while we wait for our future bodily resurrection at the return of Christ. Not only are we made alive with him, not only are we raised up with him, we find out we are exalted with him. Again, go back to what he just said in the previous section, 15 to 23, in his prayer. Uh, another way that God has demonstrated his power is by exalting his son to his right hand. And what we find out here is that by virtue of our union with the Son of God, that we too are exalted in him, with him. Christ is above all power, all authority, all rule, all dominion. And, by, and because we are united with him, we now share in his power, in his authority. We don't have to fear or submit to the evil powers. We are united to the one who reigns far above all powers. This is such a, a comforting and empowering truth. We are no longer at the mercy of the powers. They are not our masters. We don't have to obey their dictates. Notice all three of these verses, uh, made us alive, raised with him, exalted with him. God has done this, and this is our present reality. We are already alive. We are already raised up. We are already exalted, even as we wait for all that is to be consummated concerning our salvation and the renewal of creation. We already have life. We already have the, the, the joy of being in, in Christ and enjoying his rule over powers that, were, that previously oppressed us but are now subject to him. And God has done all this to the praise of his glory. Paul in his doxology in chapter 1, uh, three times he repeated that God's great blessings to us are to the praise of his glory. And he repeats that here. He says, uh, he made us alive, raised us, and exalted us in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are the window displays of God's grace. Paul would write later to Timothy that as the foremost of sinners, God saved him in order that in him, God may demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul was exhibit A of God's grace, mercy, patience, love, and kindness to sinners. If God has had mercy on Paul, he will be merciful to any sinner who would turn to him in faith. Uh, this is what Paul is saying that God has done for us as well. We are living billboards of God's grace. 
Is God gracious? Yes. How do we know? Look at the people he has saved by making them alive and raising them and exalting them with his son. Here is all the evidence we need. Not just that God is gracious, but that he is immeasurably rich in his grace and kindness toward us. We will sing the goodness of God's amazing grace to the end of the ages and beyond. Paul ends this section with a how of salvation. How do we receive this so such a great salvation that God has accomplished for us in his son by his mercy, love, grace, and kindness? It's natural for human beings full of pride to think that that great effort must be required of us on our part to yearn or merit so great a salvation. Let us work hard. Paul quickly disabuses us of all such notions. This great gift of salvation is by God's grace and can only be received by faith and not by works so that no one may boast. He opens this section by repeating what he said in the earlier verse, for by grace you have been saved. But here he adds a crucial phrase to that statement, through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The basis for salvation is by God's grace alone. The means by which we receive that salvation is by faith alone. What is faith? It's complete trust, complete reliance on what God has done for us. Paul continues, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is fully and completely a work of God. We receive it by faith as a gift. Paul refers here not just to faith, but the whole package. All of salvation is a gift. God's grace by which he saves us and which we receive through faith. Our entire salvation is a gift that has been bestowed on us by no merit or effort of our own. If we didn't get it, he clarifies further in verse 9. He says that our salvation is not by works. Faith, is not, faith itself is not a work. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes, the contrast there, faith is not a work. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Paul has in mind all such works that we may believe are meritorious before God to obtain salvation. Every, every religion has a list of do's and don'ts that you can observe uh, that will somehow merit favor from God. But our scripture tells us that there is nothing that we can do because we are fully tainted by sin that would merit salvation. But God is rich in mercy, grace, love, and kindness. And he has done all that is necessary to save us. And he has done that by taking away our sin in his son Jesus, whom he gave to die for our sins, whom he raised from the dead. He clothes us with the righteousness of his son so that we stand before him as his son would. And we have received this gift of salvation through faith that he enables in us through, our, through his spirit. My brothers and sisters, this is the humility and the jubilation of our salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring, except for my sins and transgressions. Uh, but simply to the cross I cling, the cross where my dear Savior took my sin away. I have been made alive with him. I have been raised up with him. I have been exalted with him. If that's the case, no 
boasting. No boasting. Paul concludes the, 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 this section by stating the purpose for which God has given us this great salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. He has done it this way so that no one may boast. Boasting is ruled out. We humbly acknowledge that we are the recipients of God's great grace and mercy and love and kindness. No one can stand before the throne of God and say, I did it my way, or I am the captain of my soul. The prophet Jeremiah said that, let no one, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the only ground for our boasting. Paul repeats that to the Corinthians. He says he will boast in the cross of Christ, but not in himself. All this has a purpose, as we see in the last verse. Paul writes, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and not by works, and no one can boast. Well, let's go home and rejoice in our salvation. Praise the Lord. Yes, but wait. <laughs> There's more. God has saved us for a purpose. Paul tells us that while we are not saved by works, we are saved for good works. Good works are not the means of salvation. They are the purpose for which we have been saved. Paul would write to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Why? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are a new creation in Christ. God has saved us. God has made us alive for a new way of life. Uh, you know, we used to walk in sins and transgressions when we were dead. But now that he has made us alive, we continue to walk, but now we walk in good works that he has prepared for us beforehand, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. What are these good works? They are not just these extraordinary works that we see uh, someone like a Mother Teresa doing and we marvel that people would, are capable of such good works. These are the everyday goodness of speaking the truth, working so that we can meet the needs of others, humility, gentleness, kindness. These are the good works in which we can walk every day as those who have been made alive. Ephesians repeatedly contrasts the way we used to live and the way we ought to live. This change from the former way of life, dead, to those who are alive in Christ, this is our witness to the world of what God has done for us in Christ for his own glory. We are created for good works. Well, in the first three chapters of this epistle, we are in the middle of the second, Paul writes, much that is for us to know, to understand, to believe, if you're itching for action, he will get to that in chapters 4 through 6. Uh, and we saw Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 as, as scripted, what we need to understand, what we need to know. But even this section is a script for our lives. How do we live Ephesians 2, 1 to 10? Well, we start with where Paul started in, with what God has done for us. But God, 
Paul began with the dire circumstances from which we have been saved. We were dead, but we are now alive. Salvation is not about bad people made nice. It's about dead people made alive. And we have not, we have, we, we have this not because we have earned such a great rescue, but God is rich in mercy, great in love, full of grace and kindness. He has chosen to do so at great cost to himself. You know, I, I went to church all my life, but I did not know Christ. Uh, even when I first started coming to Calvary, uh, I was an unbeliever. Some of you may not know this, but it's true. Uh, I used to believe that, you know, if I clean up my life, you know, maybe God will include me in his family. That's not what was preached, but that's what my uh, dead heart heard. And when God awakened me to the gospel, the, go the good news of the gospel is not clean up yourself and God will take you in. The good news of the gospel is there's nothing you can do to change because you're dead. Trust in what Jesus Christ has done and he will make you alive. Let us never forget that. Let, us that, let that be that God has made us alive from being dead. Uh, let that be our waking thought. Let that be our hallelujah as we go to bed at night. We are alive in Christ Jesus. Passage tells us that uh, we are we are those who participate in Christ. You know, we often speak of salvation as forgiveness of sins. It includes that, but it's so much more than that. It's nothing less than participation in Christ. God saved us by uniting us to his son in his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. When we trust in Christ, we are raised in him. We are exalted in him, seated with him in the heavenlies. He is in us. We are in him. There is no salvation apart from him. It's a great mystery for sure, one that will take all our lives and eternity beyond to begin to fathom what it means to be in Christ. But this is our station in life. You and me and the person sitting next to you, we are in Christ. And we are together in Christ. Thirdly, grace. This passage speaks much of grace. God who is rich in grace and mercy. Grace is often misunderstood. I mean, we can go wrong in one of two ways. First, some take grace as a license. Hey, God will forgive me. I, I live by grace. Or, as Paul's opponent would say in Romans, let us sin that grace may abound. That's blasphemous. God came to make us alive, set us free, and to do good works to the glory of God. Grace is so that we may be people who are zealous for good works, not to continue on in sin. The other way people get it wrong is that they believe that grace gets us started, but then we make our way through the Christian faith by our own very hard work. The Galatians went down that wrong path and Paul had to call them back with some very harsh language. Um, all of salvation is by grace. Justification is by grace. Sanctification is by grace. Glorification is by grace. We can't live the Christian life by our effort. We need grace. The good news is God is rich in grace. He will never run short of the grace that we need to live according to his ways. Grace moves us to thanksgiving, to worship. There's no room for pride in the self. We are saved by grace. So all glory, honor, and praise be unto God who saved a wretch like me. Faith 
Faith too is often misunderstood. Some take faith as just merely acknowledging a set of facts or beliefs about Jesus Christ. But faith is complete reliance in Jesus Christ. We trust him that he died for my sins. He was raised from the dead on the third day. God has said that all those who believe in him, he grants forgiveness of sins and life and eternal life. I have believed in the Son of God. I have eternal life because God has said so. This morning, if you're here in the audience or if you're listening online, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, the bad news is dead, that you're dead. But the good news is that today you can be made alive. You too can be alive in Christ if you trust in Him, if you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead. You have not my word, but God's word, that your sins are forgiven, and you will have eternal life as his children. Good works. That's how Paul ended the passage. Good works are not optional for saved people. God requires it for us. He saved us for that purpose. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. If we are saved by grace, through faith, because of God's infinite love, mercy, kindness, and grace, then these very qualities, love, grace, mercy, and kindness, ought to characterize our lives. We ought to love others as God has loved us. Uh, we will sh he will show us what are the good works that we need to do to show Christ's life in us. Uh, he will point us to someone who needs some encouragement, or maybe even correction. Uh, he, maybe he will help us to protect the vulnerable, to provide for those who are in need. Good works, living in purity, not complaining or gossiping, giving generously. All of these things should characterize Christ's followers. This is why God has saved us, so that we may be witnesses to the world by the good works that are ours in Christ Jesus to do. Finally, brothers and sisters, you and me, brother, you and me, sister, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God, who is rich, who is great in mercy because of his great love, by his grace alone, in his kindness, he has made us alive in Christ. He has raised up with Christ. He has exalted us with Christ. This is our before and after story. This is our story of death to life. You believe that? Then let us live like that's true. Well, let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this morning that you have made us alive. We didn't even know we were dead. Father, we didn't even know that we were in bondage. We weren't even looking for salvation, but that's what we needed desperately more than anything else, so that we would not be destined for your wrath. So you, in your great mercy, at great cost to yourself, because of your wonderful tender mercies, your love and your kindness, you gave us your son to die for us, to take away your judgment upon us. And because he had no sin in himself, you raised him from the dead. And you have given us your word that all those who believe in him will be forgiven, have eternal life, made alive in Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in his exalted place. Help us, Lord, to believe what you say and live as people who are alive raised up with Christ and seated and exalted with him by how we live by the good works that you called us to do that point people to the Lord Jesus Christ that what he has done for us
that he will do for them as well because father you are rich in grace and mercy and kindness and love we thank you in your son jesus amen thank you for listening to tell it from calvary if you feel led to give toward the local national and global ministries of calvary baptist please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.